the day, some of the darkest 24 hours in our nation's history. <laughs> Such a drama queen, that Ted Cruz. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM in K uh, in on the Oregon Central Coast. That's 91.7 KYAQ, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. On the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, on the iTunes, where many of you have given us good reviews lately. Thank you for that. Also heard on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around Swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Welcome to another thrilling adventure. You know, uh, right-wingers, right-wingers pick the stupidest fights, just the dumbest, stupidest fights that they can't win, that they won't win, and they know it. And the, the Obamacare fight was stupid. It was stupid from the beginning. It was a Republican idea to start with, but then, you know... Barack Obama wanted to pass it, so uh, we hate it. We have to fight it. We have to make up things, make up reasons why we got to get rid of it. There was a real fight to be had there, by the way, and progressives actually had a real fight concerning Obamacare, and they still are, and they still should, to get a more progressive health care plan, a more universal health care plan. That's fine. And there are legitimate things, I think, that uh, Republicans could have fought about when it came to Obamacare, but they didn't. They picked all the stupid ones, like, oh, there was a typo in the law. Therefore, we're going to go all the way to the Supreme Court to fix it. Just stupid. The fight against marriage equality, stupid. Just stupid. They lost that one, too. But I guess it's easier to raise money on stupid than it is on a good, legitimate fight uh, over our governance and the way this country runs. There are fights that matter. Fights they could legitimately be raising against Democrats and this administration. Uh, The NSA comes to mind. They should and could be fighting over that. War uh, against ISIS without congressional authorization which is required by the Constitution. They could be waging that fight. They don't want to touch it. They don't even want to talk about ISIS in Congress. Anyway, there are fights worth waging, like the fight to actually save humanity from self-destruction. That seems to be a fight worth waging. And we're going to talk about that fight in a little bit with my guest Michael Girard of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. A big, a big court case was won uh, late last week and lost amidst the flurry of the uh, Supreme Court rulings here. We're going to talk to him about that because it was a big court case, not in the U.S., 
uh, but in Europe, in the Netherlands. And it was really big. It was really huge, and it was really important. And, of course, nobody knows about it here. And uh, the Republicans, God love them, certainly aren't talking about it. We'll also be joined by Desi Doyen with our latest Green News report. As Chris, Chris, uh, Chris Christie, governor of New Jersey, enters the 2016 Republican race with the slogan, telling it like it is. We will tell you his secret position on climate change like it is. As opposed to how he as opposed to how he would like you to believe that it is. This we know because uh, at uh, Bradblog.com some years ago, I obtained some secret audio tapes from inside a Koch Brothers secret summit in Colorado. We'll play you some of that uh, here in a minute and in the Green News Report because this all ties together. Uh, Also in the Green News Report, uh, the solar impulse, which is the solar plane, the first world, I think the world's first solar plane, at least the world's first solar plane that is trying to fly around the globe. Uh, It finally took off on its most harrowing leg, a five day and night, a five day and night. The solar plane has to run at night. Uh, For five days now, it will be flying over the Pacific Ocean with uh, nowhere to land if things go terribly wrong uh, in this solar-powered plane. So we'll be talking about that in a little bit with Desi Doyen in the Green News Report. So was Chris Christie telling it like it is when he secretly snuck out of New Jersey, didn't tell the press, didn't put it on his uh, calendar? When he secretly snuck out of New Jersey to fly to Vail, Colorado on a private plane back in 2011 to give the secret keynote speech to a bunch of millionaires and billionaires at the Koch Brothers Secret Summit in Vail, Colorado. Was he telling it like it is when he lied about that, when he went on TV that night uh, or actually that morning before leaving so that it looked like he was in town? And then he showed up first thing on TV the next morning back in Manhattan so no one ever knew he left until we broke the story at bradblog.com that he was the secret keynote speaker at that year's secret uh, Koch Brothers event. Was, was he telling it like it was when he did that? Was he telling it like it was when he secretly met in Manhattan with David Koch of the Koch Brothers and then just weeks later dropped out of a greenhouse gas emissions agreement that the Koch Brothers have long opposed? And nobody knew about that. Nobody knew about that until we broke the story at uh, at bradblog.com and over at Mother Jones, where I wrote about this exclusively at the time. That secret meeting and then dropping out of the regional greenhouse gas initiative, uh, as Chris Christie did shortly just after, just weeks after that meeting, uh, that led David Koch to announce, to declare Chris Christie was my kind of guy. When he introduced him at the Secret Koch Brothers Summit, here's a little bit of that audio. David Koch introducing Chris Christie as my kind of guy. Uh, it's a real privilege for me to be asked to say a few words on, on behalf of Governor Chris Christie. Five months ago, we met in my New York City office and spoke just the two of us for about two hours on his objectives and successes in correcting many of the most serious problems of the New Jersey state government. At the end of our conversation, 
I've said to myself, I'm really impressed and inspired by this man. He is my kind of guy. He is my kind of guy. That was David Koch talking about Chris Christie, introducing him at the Secret Summit. You will only hear that on this program, I suspect. Uh, you can listen to the entire audio of both David Koch introducing Chris Christie and then Chris Christie giving his stem winder of a keynote speech out there at this uh, secret confab in the mountains. Uh, you can go to bradblog.com slash tapes and hear them all. Chris Christie now in the 2016 race for president of the United States. And he actually says on this on these uh, tapes, he actually says, quote, I can't believe how stupid these people are. He's talking about the Democrats at the time, and he's describing how he played them when he first took over as governor in 2009. There was a there was a fiscal budget shortfall that year in, in 2009, shortly after he took office. And this is what he claimed. Uh, well, he, he claimed that that he said to the uh, Democrats in the New Jersey State House, uh, who were and and are the majority party in the legislature. This is what he claimed to have told his aides. It's a little bit uh, difficult to hear, but this is how he exe- he decided. Oh man, I can uh, use executive power. I can just take all the money, declare a fiscal emergency, and solve this problem by executive fiat. The exact same thing that Republicans pretend to be upset about when Barack Obama does it. Again, a little bit difficult to hear, but I'll I'll, I'll read you the important quotes a- after you give it a listen. It was good news for all of you and for me is that the governorship in New Jersey is the most powerful constitutional governorship in America. And so I went to my folks and said, listen, we got to fix this problem, but I do not want to deal with those people down the hall. <laughs> and so they told me, they told me, if you declare a fiscal state of emergency, you can use your emergency powers as governor to impound $2.2 billion in plan spending and balance the budget. And you can do it by executive order. I said, man, I love this thing. Always oh, got him in stitches. In stitches. So, I went to my office all by myself. They set up the executive order and I signed it. But I thought it would be rude for me not to go down and tell that co-equal branch of government what I had just done. So I, I asked them for a, for a joint session speech. And we went down there to give our joint session speech, and I basically said this. You left me with a $2.2 billion problem. You want me to raise taxes? I'm not going to. I just impounded the money by executive order. I fixed your problem. Thanks. Have a nice day. And I walked out. <laughs> That was Chris Christie. Chris Christie back in uh, in 2011 at the Secret Koch Brothers uh, meeting, uh, just just keeping those millionaires and billionaires in stitches, talking about how he declared a fake fiscal state of emergency so he could impound two billion dollars without the uh, co-equal branch of government, without even telling the legislator, uh, legislative branch about it. That's what Chris Christie did. Oh, the Republicans are going to love that since they pretend to uh, hate executive powers when, uh, when Barack Obama exercises them perfectly constitutionally, by the way, I think. 
So anyway, you can get uh, more on that, and uh, you can read the transcripts along with it in case it's difficult to understand uh, at bradblog.com slash coke tapes. Coke is C-O-K-O-C-H, like the Brothers Coke. And that's uh, that's Chris Christie, the 14th or third. Yeah, 14th, I think, uh, uh, major Republican now to enter the, uh, the 2016 primary race. Oh, that'll be fun. Speaking of stupid fights uh, after, uh, well, the, the Scottish Scotus, uh, the Supreme Court marriage equality ruling last Friday. The uh, Republicans are now beside themselves. They don't know what to do. It's chaos on the Republican side. They, they just can't tolerate the idea that the Constitution doesn't allow you to, uh, you know, to protect some people from uh, the law, but not others. That uh, discrimination can't be uh, waged against people just because they happen to be gay. Therefore, you can withhold them the right to marry the person they love. They can't stand that. So in this aftermath, it was crazy. Uh, Huckabee, Mike Huckabee, another one, a former governor of Arkansas, another one of these 14 or 27 uh, people running for president on the Republican side. He described what the Supreme Court did in saying, yeah, well, we think uh, under the uh, Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause means you can't discriminate against some people but not others. Huckabee describes that as tyranny three times. He said uh, in a statement released just after the Supreme Court put out their ruling, he said, the Supreme Court has spoken with a very divided voice on something only the supreme being can do, redefine marriage. I will not acquiesce to an imperial court any more than our founders acquiesced to an imperial British monarch. We must resist and reject judicial tyranny, not retreat. Yes, it's judicial tyranny. This decision, he said, will prove to be one of the one of the court's most disastrous decisions. The only outcome worse than this flawed, failed decision would be for the president and Congress to equal to co-equal branches of government. Oh, don't tell Chris Christie about that, Governor Huckabee. Two co-equal branches of government to surrender in the face of this out of control act of unconstitutional judicial tyranny. State, his uh, statement goes on to cite uh, a uh, USA Today editorial in which he, he said pretty much the same thing. He said, America can't bow to judicial tyranny on health care or gay marriage. Man, these guys are, uh, what's the word? Uh, drama queens. Is that the word you were going for, yeah, Daisy Doyen? That's <laughs> the word that I was going to go for, yeah. which is totally drama queens. It's a so total uh, soap opera in how they're reacting it's to this. It's just, you know, and ironically... When you had George W. Bush in office, where there was actual, you know, tyranny going on from the executive office, these guys couldn't care less. Oh, he's a hero. He's keeping us safe. Anyway, speaking of drama queens, here's uh, here's what Ted Cruz had to say to Sean to Sean Hannity uh, just after these decisions came down last week. Senator Ted Cruz is with us. How are you, Senator? Sean, how are you doing today? Some of the darkest 24 hours in our nation's history. Uh, I, I, I couldn't say it more eloquently. I loved your comments yesterday where you said, you know, hey, listen, they're, beh they're not calling balls and strikes. They've joined the team, and the team is hurting Americans. And you said if they want, they can, they can retire from the court, and if they want to write laws, they can become legislators like you are. Who's getting hurt? That, 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 Who's that is getting exactly hurt? right. Yesterday and today, 
were both naked and shameless judicial activism. <laughs> it so, is neither decision. The decision yesterday rewriting Obamacare. For the second time. For the second time, six justices joined the Obama administration. You now have Barack Obama, Kathleen Sebelius, and six justices responsible for forcing this failed disaster of a law on millions of Americans and simply rewriting the law in a way that is fundamentally contrary to, to their judicial oaths. No, it's not. And then today, no, no, it's not. this radical decision reporting to strike down the marriage laws of every state, it has no connection to the United States Constitution. They are simply making it up. It is lawless, and in doing so, they have undermined the fundamental legitimacy of the United States Supreme Court. Ah, so now both the executive branch, the White House is illegitimate, the Supreme Court is illegitimate. They are simply making it up with their lawlessness at the Supreme Court. Uh, read the decisions for yourself. You can decide how lawless they are. Speaking of making things up, uh, good work, Ted Cruz. Making things up, raising money. Uh, by lying to the American people. That's Ted Cruz. Uh, Stephen Colbert, on the other hand, well, he was telling the truth in his satirical way as he uh, put out a promo for his uh, his upcoming uh, debut, I guess, on the on the late late show, late night. What is it? Uh, one whatever of they call yeah, it, one of his late those. night show. David Letterman's old show. September is when he's coming in. David uh, Stephen Colbert. Uh, well, here's here's a little bit of what he had to say about the uh, Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage equality. Hello, people watching this discreetly at work. Stephen Colbert here. Nice headphones. I'm here to say congratulations, gays. <laughs> you now have the right to marry in all 50 states. So if you're a homosexual and living in North Dakota, all your problems are solved. Enjoy Dakota Pride Week. <laughs> wow. History moves fast. It's hard to believe that gay Americans achieved full constitutional personhood just five years after corporations did. Yes, exactly. And where were those Republicans? Where was Ted Cruz talking about the 24 darkest hours in our nation's history when corporations were allowed to become persons according to the U.S. Constitution? They don't know what to do. They are besides themselves. Uh, Bill O'Reilly Bill O'Reilly was he speaking of making things up. Here's what Bill O'Reilly had to say. Here's one of his many complaints about the ruling uh, by the Supreme Court. Here's how crazy the system has become in the Supreme Court. Liberal justices Ginsburg and Kagan each presided over a gay marriage. In Ginsburg's case, four of them. Yet they did not recuse themselves. What? They didn't when recuse the issue themselves? came before the court. Come on. Come on. What? I don't understand well, why they would have to recuse because, themselves. Because clearly they like gay marriage, because they presided over one. Four of them in the case of... Now, he's not calling for the other justices who presided over straight marriages, because it seems like they would also have a dog in the hunt. They're perfectly fine. They didn't need to recuse themselves. Their opinion on straight marriage, that was just fine. But these uh, same-sex marriage, come on! And as, that, as if that isn't dumb enough, stupid enough, here's Bill O'Reilly. Not only uh, does he sort of recognize, okay, well, if you say that gay people were being oppressed by not allowing them to be married, well, how about us Christians now that you are allowing them to be married? Oppression runs both ways, says Bill O'Reilly. Uh, it, it's Christians. And then, by the way, and then he goes after, guess who? 
Stephen Colbert. Oppression runs both ways, and all Americans should consider that. For example, Justice Scalia wrote a well-thought-out dissent to the gay marriage decision. He was immediately mocked. <laughs> Justice Scalia was a little more nuanced in his criticism, writing that if he ever joined an opinion that began the way Justice Kennedy's majority decision did, quote, I would hide my head in a bag. I could have sworn he was already hiding his head in a flesh-toned cinch sack. Please come on my show, sir. <laughs> now, mocking someone is not oppression making jokes about someone is not oppression disagreeing with someone is not oppression as a matter of fact i am mocking bill o'reilly now he is not being oppressed by me he does not seem to understand the difference and then by the way then using his own same theory well apparently bill o'reilly is now oppressing stephen colbert in a few months, Colbert will be competing against Fallon and Kimmel, both talented and successful guys. You might want to think about alienating traditional Americans to the extent he has. Could be very bad for business. Yeah, if you know what, it could be bad for business. Hate to see something happen to your nice bakery shop here, Mr. Colbert. Hate to see it burn at the ground or something, if you know what I'm saying. It might be bad for business. But please don't consider this oppression or nothing. <sighs> Man. O'Reilly, so they don't know what to do. O'Reilly was even, he was even disturbed by the fact that uh, the White House lit itself up with the colors of the rainbow in celebration of, uh, of the Supreme Court ruling. I must say I was a bit surprised to see the White House doing a victory lap using actual White House property. What? On Friday. The People's House oh. was illuminated in rainbow colors to celebrate the gay marriage decision. Now, what about all the Americans who believe that a redefinition of marriage is not the job of the Supreme Court? Good. Good point there, Bill O'Reilly. What about all of the Americans who think that uh, we should separate church and state and that we shouldn't light up the White House with the green and red colors to celebrate Jesus Christ and Christmas over the holidays? What about us? Where's O'Reilly been on that? Oh, he's on the wrong side of the war on Christmas, apparently. Man, unbelievable. Yeah, so now he's upset about that, too. These people, they just love to be victims. Meanwhile, more serious people, like the Chief Justice of Alabama, Roy Moore. Yes, the Chief Ju uh, the Supreme Court of Alabama. This guy is the Chief Justice. He is coming undone. Since the ruling. Speaking uh, from the pulpit of the Kimberly Church of God on uh, their God and Country Day, Chief Justice Roy Moore said, Just who do they think they are when one person can reverse 200 and something years of precedent in our country and thousands of years of precedent in Western civilization? Welcome to the new world, said Chief Justice Roy Moore from the pulpit in Alabama. It's just changed for you Christians. You're going to be persecuted according to the U.S. Supreme Court. Is there such a thing as morality anymore, he continued. Sodomy for centuries was declared to be against the laws of nature and nature's God. And now if you say that in public, and I guess I am, I'm violating somebody's civil rights. No, you're not. No, you're not. You, you st we, we still have the First Amendment. You still have free speech. You can say that. 
Justice Roy Moore. What are we Christians to do? He added. But worse, despite what he says, uh, he's wreaking havoc again in his state, in the judicial system, in the legal system, just as he did back in, uh, in February when he said the probate judges in Alabama don't need to follow the, the findings from the federal court at the time that found that Alabama's ban on gay marriage was illegal and unconstitutional. He's doing it again. He suggested that because the plaintiffs in the Supreme Court case have 25 days to ask the court for a rehearing, which they never do and they won't, that probate judges don't have to issue licenses in Alabama for gay weddings. Now, he's walked that back a little bit. He said, quote, in no way does the order instruct probate judges of this state as to whether or not they should comply with the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling. So they don't know what to do. Probate judges down in Alabama don't know what to do, don't know whose law they will be breaking if they do or don't issue a, a, a marriage license. In Arkansas, a county clerk plans to resign on uh, Tuesday due to a moral objection to issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples, according to Arkansas Online. Dana Guffey, who served as a clerk in Cleburne County for 24 years, said her decision to leave the post was not made out of hate. Arkansas State Senator Jason Rappert, Rappert published, published a tweet on Sunday saying, and it begins. I have just been advised one Arkansas County clerk will resign before issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Hashtag resist. <laughs> That's what he said. Republican uh, state senator, in case you couldn't guess. He, uh, he went on to say that I encourage all like-minded political leaders around the entire nation to do the same. Resist! We cannot sit idly by while five-robed lawyers try to seize power from the states and the people. He also indicated that he agreed with Texas Attorney General uh, Ken Paxton's decision to support clerks who want to opt out of issuing marriage licenses to gay couples. Meanwhile, in Texas, over the weekend... Uh, one of the uh, local clerks uh, who opposes gay marriage on religious grounds said she doesn't see a need for the exemption that uh, the uh, Texas Attorney General is trying to put out there for religious purposes. She said, personally, same-sex marriage is a contradiction of my faith and belief that marriage is between one man and one woman. However, first and foremost, I took an oath on my family Bible to uphold the law, and as an elected public official, my personal belief cannot prevent me from issuing the licenses as required. Good for her. That was Denton County Clerk Julie Luke in her statement on Sunday. Her clerk's office oversaw its first gay marriage on Monday morning. All right, finally, before we get to a break here, and we'll uh, come back with our guest, Michael Gerard, uh, a Florida photographer loses a client over marriage equality and responds brilliantly. Apparently, this Florida wedding uh, Florida photographer put up a, a, a logo when the ruling came out in rainbow colors, and it infuriated one of his, com uh, one of his uh, clients. So here's what he wrote back to the client. He said, wow, I'm not really sure what to say here. I would say this disappoints me. He was leaving and no longer going to use his services. But I actually find this to be a good thing because our company now would uh, not like to work with you as well. It's not that because you have a different view from us, but it's because since you don't like and support gay marriage, no one else should be able to have it. That's like me not liking broccoli and demanding that everyone else in the world should not have broccoli either. If you're not in favor of gay marriage, that's fine. 
don't marry a woman. Personally, I was taught not to judge others and to love everyone, so I will try not to judge you here and say anything more as to my opinion of you. At Brentwood Photography, we see love in all forms. Now, as far as your retainer goes, I hope you'll read the first article in the contract you signed stating that this retainer is non-refundable. But don't worry, I'm not going to keep it. Because of this conversation, I have decided to donate your $1,500 to the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, a group created to help and support gay rights. So let me be the first to say thank you very much for your donation and support for this great cause. I couldn't have done it without your money. Sincerely and with love, Brentwood Photography. Way to go, Mr. Uh, Lee. Clinton Brentwood Lee of Brentwood Photography in Florida. Man, I hope you get nothing but clients. Well done. Hey, Republicans, uh, you know, you pick stupid fights and they're ridiculous. But again, as I said, I think it's much easier to raise money on stupid than on smarts. So for now, for Republicans, apparently stupid it will be. Quick break, and we're back with Michael Gerard. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. My thanks to our friend uh, Nicole Sandler over at our affiliate Radio or Not for, uh, for showing me that song, uh, Mercury Poisoning Brother. Uh, we talked yesterday on this program about the Supreme Court decision, the 5-4 to four decision, which struck down the Mercury pollution rules that the EPA had been working on for, oh, just about 30 years, largely, I believe, on a technicality that they were knocked down. Technicality uh, being that the EPA did not consider the costs first, despite the fact that uh, this rule would, uh, they contend, would save about 11,000 uh, premature deaths that the uh, monetized benefits would be somewhere between 37 and 90 billion to the country each year in just you know healthcare costs and so forth that would be saved if we get this uh, mercury and arsenic out of the air 
But Antonin Scalia would have none of it. Uh, he was uh, fixated on the cost that it would, uh, on the fact that it would cost about nine point six billion each year to industry. Never mind that thirty-seven to ninety billion would be saved by the American people and all those thousands of lives. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. But late last week, uh, in our Green News report. Uh, we had talked about this decision, and this sort of got lost with all of the Supreme Court decisions last week and a remarkable week here in this country. But uh, we talked about it on the Green News Report, and I said I wanted to learn more about this case because it really did get sort of buried with all of the news. A court in the Netherlands has ordered the Dutch government to toughen its climate policies, a major ruling that could motivate environmental activists to pursue a similar stra- legal strategy in other countries. According to the New York Times, the Hague District Court ordered the government to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by at least 25 percent from 1990 levels in the next five years. The government had previously committed to reducing emissions by 17 percent, but that wasn't enough, according to an environmental group, Urgenda, who sued and demanded that the reductions be between 25% and 40%, and they were victorious last week. And I know a lot of environmentalists were absolutely thrilled about this ruling. The court concluded that, quote, due to the severity of the consequences of climate change and the great risk of hazardous climate change occurring without mitigating measures, the court concludes that the state has a duty of care to take mitigation measures. This circumstance, the circumstances that the Dutch contribution to the present global greenhouse gas emissions is currently small doesn't affect this. In other words, doesn't matter how much they're putting out uh, as far as emissions go. They have to reduce it more than they had decided to reduce it. The effects of the decision could ripple far beyond the Netherlands, says Michael B. Gerard, the director of Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia Law School. He told the New York Times, quote, I think this will encourage lawyers in several other countries to see if they have the uh, to see if they have opportunities in their domestic courts to pursue similar litigation. Joining us now to talk about this is Michael B. Gerard. He is the director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law and the Andrew Sabin Professor of Professional Practice at Columbia Law School in New York City. He teaches environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation. Uh, he's also the associate chair of the faculty of Columbia University's Earth Institute, and he has written or edited 11 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in the field. Other other than that, he has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, Michael Gerard, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Okay. Um, it, it, well, actually, before I get to this Dutch case, let me just get your thoughts on the Supreme Court. I would be remiss because I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. It, it seems to me this was largely a technicality that the Supreme Court uh, struck down this rule although it's a crucial technicality because this rule has essentially been in the works for some 30 years by the EPA. Uh, what, what is your take on the Supreme Court's uh, ruling in that Mercury case yesterday? Well, it's a bad rule, but it doesn't have terrible impacts. Uh, it required coal-fired power plants to install new equipment to reduce mercury emissions. Most of them have already done that. 
or are already locked into buying the equipment that will do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rule remains in effect until it goes back to the D.C. Circuit, uh, which will decide whether to put it on hold then or merely leave it in effect until the EPA goes forward with uh, with a revision. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we wish it had gone the other way, uh, but it doesn't have terrible impacts. Uh, and I hadn't realized that. So the rule is already in effect and will stay in effect until something replaces it or until the, uh, the, the lower court says it must stop enforcing this rule? Yeah, the people who sued are going to have to go back to the U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C., mm-hmm. um, which will decide whether to put a hold on the rule or to leave it in effect while EPA goes back and redoes the paperwork. Gotcha. So it is not as bad as it as as it sounded in many circles uh, when when the hearing or when the uh, decision first came out. Good to know. Okay. Uh, as I said, lost in uh, so much that went on last week was this decision in this court in the Netherlands. And I know that uh, environmentalists that I were I was reading just seemed to be delighted about this. And it didn't make it into much U.S. news with everything else going on. So um, I'm trying to understand what this case was and what they were actually suing about. But can you give me so can you give me just a general idea uh, Michael Gerard, what this case was, and then we could talk about what the implications may be elsewhere around the world. Yeah, so this group of uh, citizens sued the Dutch government and said it wasn't doing enough to fight climate change. They said that under the Dutch Constitution, under European human rights law, under uh, lots of other international law, uh, the government had an obligation to reduce uh, greenhouse gases more than they were, and the court agreed. And the court uh, didn't just send it back to the government to try to do better. The court gave the government numerical requirements for how much it had to reduce uh, national greenhouse gas emissions by 2020. And do you get the sense, uh, well, I got the sense that environmentalists were delighted about this. Uh, do you get this? Is, this? is this as good news as it seemed to be from the reactions to it? Yes, I would say this is the most important uh, decision on climate change law outside of the United States ever issued. You wow. know, assuming that it's up, uh, you know, we don't know if it'll be appealed. Um, if it's appealed and is overturned, then not so much. Uh, but assuming that it stands, it is an extremely important decision. Wow, the most important decision outside of the U.S. So how does this, uh, you had mentioned that uh, they sued not just under the Dutch Constitution, but under the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, they referred to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, 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 in other words, a lot of things above and beyond simply Dutch law and Dutch Constitution. Is this something that can be carried out elsewhere? You know, in this country, we go out of our way to not recognize international law and world courts. So I don't even know if this is something that could be applied here. Could it? Well, I don't think it can be applied in the U.S. because the U.S. Supreme Court has already ruled that it's not the job of the courts to set greenhouse gas emissions limits, that it's the job of EPA. But outside of the U.S., uh, already, uh, you know, a couple months ago, a similar suit was filed in Belgium. One is in the works in Norway, and there are lawyers in other parts of the world who are looking very closely at this decision to see what they can make of it. So we have a number of countries around the world where, well, you can't do it in the U.S., 
a similar suit could be uh, brought and essentially what what was the uh the citizens who brought this case what was their argument i mean after all you had the uh the dutch government had already pledged a 17% reduction and are they just able to go and say well that's not enough we want more the un has agreed that the maximum tolerable increase in global average temperatures is 2 degrees celsius above pre-industrial conditions. It was clear that the uh, reduction that the Dutch government had agreed to was not enough uh, to be its share of uh, the contribution of of that country to reducing global greenhouse gas emissions. The Netherlands has one of the highest per capita emission rates for greenhouse gases in the world. Uh, The plaintiffs were able to persuade the court that looking at the numbers from by the UN and others that uh, they needed to do better. And they said that a, uh, I think the state or the country had argued that, well, it doesn't matter because we're such a small country that even if we went from our current uh, emissions target of 17% up to 25, it would not make a difference in the overall uh, you know, problem with global warming. The court did not accept that as an argument? Right, because if every everybody can say that if the only way we're going to solve the climate problem is if every country does its share um, the climate problem results from the cumulative greenhouse gas emissions of all countries mm-hmm. over the world uh, over a century and if we anybody's uh, contribution is small it all has to add up uh, but we have to start somewhere and so the court is saying the netherlands have to do their bit and that was actually, that is, in fact, an argument that I hear in this country all the time. Oh, it wouldn't matter if, if uh, you know, the United States, if we cut even more of our, uh, you know, global warming gas emissions, it, it wouldn't matter because China and India aren't doing the same. So if we can't do everything we can do, we, we should do nothing. That's what I hear from Republicans all the time on this matter. You do, and that's an argument that was explicitly rejected by the Supreme Court back in 2007 in what is the single most important uh, case ever decided on climate change, Massachusetts versus EPA, which held that EPA does have the power under the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And this same argument was raised uh, in that case, and the Supreme Court rejected it. It said everybody has to do their part, that, you know, it's, a, it's enough that we do, you know, uh, we the U.S. contribute significantly, and so we have to admit regardless of what China and India do. And how how did um, uh, Michael Gerard? How did human rights law figure into it? Because I think it's interesting. Since the Pope's encyclical uh, a week or so ago came out, and and suddenly people are understanding there is a uh, a moral uh, angle, a moral obligation to do something about uh, climate change. Is that uh, a similar argument that was made in regard to human rights and human rights law in this case in the Netherlands? The basic legal theory that the court used was that it it was within the duty of care of the Dutch government to uh, reduce greenhouse gases. In figuring out what the duty of care means, they looked at a number of authorities. One of them is the European Convention on Human Rights. Mm-hmm. That has a right to life, which means something different in Europe than, it, than the connotation in the U.S. Uh, it, it includes the right to be uh, healthy. 
Um, and uh, clearly climate change has very adverse effects on, on human health and welfare. And so that was one of the elements that went into the Dutch decision. And does that argument have any standing in lawsuits here in the U.S.? Uh, do you see any possibility that, you know, on human rights grounds, uh, people can sue uh, their states and, and maybe the U.S. to do more based on these uh, human rights issues? And s- I don't see that. In the first place, the U.S. is not a member of the European Convention on Human Rights. Mm. And in the second place, as I said, the Supreme Court has really ruled out the use of the federal courts to um, bring this kind of uh, suit. There is um, a possibility of bringing some suits in state courts. Mm -hmm. There are some obstacles to that, but it's a possibility, and we'll see if anybody tries that. But I don't think that the human rights theories would be the strongest in the U.S. courts. Uh, Give me an idea, um, uh, Michael Gerard, uh, your work at the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. What is it that you got? You know, I know that uh, it seems to be there's a, a group of people that will sue. I don't even want to call them people. A group of corporations that will file lawsuits against any rule that the EPA comes out with. We just saw that in the in the Mercury case. That's been you know fought for 30 years by corporations by a number of states. Uh, what does the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law do? And are you guys sort of the the other side of the equation. Are you guys the ones who bring the law or bring the lawsuits in order to uh, uh, to enforce the existing law? We don't bring the lawsuits, but our mission is to develop legal techniques to fight climate change and to educate people on their use to do studies and put out a lot of information available to lawyers and judges and advocates around the world on what are the climate change laws and how can they use them. What, what, what does that actually mean, develop legal techniques to fight climate change? Can you give a there practical are, example? Uh, uh, for instance, um, uh, we were able to intervene in the rate-making procedure in New York for Con Edison mm-hmm. uh, to require them to consider climate change in their future climate in their future capital planning to make sure that they could withstand heat waves and flooding and other kinds of events that uh, could happen in the future. And on what legal basis is that done in your in your example? The obligation of the utility is to provide reliable service. And unless they uh, anticipate future climate change and prepare for it, they're not assuring their customers of reliable service. And uh, finally, we've got just a minute or two left here, um, Michael. What, what are the potential avenues for similar limit litigation in the U.S. at both the federal and state levels if we cannot uh, do something akin to what was done in the Netherlands? In other words, you said that EPA already decides the rules. So is this a done deal? There, are, there is nothing that—I'm trying to find what it is that citizens uh, can do and if there is any parallel— to sort of push uh, lawmakers, uh, legislators, and the courts to do more than they are currently doing? The biggest fight over the next couple of years is clearly going to be about EPA's um, regulations. And as you rightly said, there are corporations that sue EPA for everything it does. This is going to be a massive litigation uh, uh, over the next several years on EPA's regulations. In addition, the largest remaining source of greenhouse gases in the United States is old coal-fired power plants. Those are addressed by the proposed EPA rules, but there are also on a site-by-site basis often legal issues concerning those power plants. So that's another important issue. 
I also think that litigation over the preparations for the climate change that is coming is important for two reasons. One is the climate change is coming and people need to prepare for it. The second is to the extent that corporations and uh, government officials begin to really grapple with the effect that climate change will have on their enterprises, uh, that may change their views about uh, trying to regulate climate change itself and realize that we really do have to get on with the job of fighting greenhouse gas emissions. As an observer, I, I know you, I'm sure you have seen, uh, you know, these, I, I think they're sort of dead enders at this point, but, you know, states like Wisconsin and Florida, uh, North Carolina, uh, basically legislators uh, and, and governors outlawing the, the language of climate change. They're trying to, uh, I don't know, George Orwell it away, as if we don't say it, it doesn't exist. Uh, is that strategy working, or can you leave us here with something more uh, encouraging? Are we heading in the, in the right direction at this point, or, or is the jury still out on that? Well, it's one of the most irresponsible things that a government official can possibly do, to direct uh, their officials to disregard known hazards. Um, and I think that uh, most uh, people in those states are, in fact, disregarding these directions that they're getting from the governor. And the responsible officials are realizing maybe we don't call it climate change. Maybe we just call it sea level rise. But we absolutely have to protect our population from this known hazard. So they're getting it. Even while they're fighting it off, you think generally we are, we are going to get through this? I mean, we are going to get... We're moving in the right direction. I've seen a big sea change. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, and now with the Pope and his encyclical, it seems like people are finally beginning to understand it. And where we were moving in the wrong direction before, we've got a whole, whole hell of a lot of work to do to get, you know, this problem taken care of. But am I too optimistic in thinking that the tide is turning and we're beginning to move in the right direction? People are beginning to understand this? I think the population is generally moving in the right uh, direction, but Congress is not. Okay, so let's do something about the Congress. Andrew, uh, Michael Gerard, uh, Andrew Sabin, Professor of Professional Practice uh, at the Sabin Center for Climate Change uh, and the law director there. Uh, thank you, sir, for your time. Really help, uh, helpful to, to make sense of this, and I hope we can talk to you again in the future uh, about similar cases because this has got to change, and it looks like it may be the in the courts where all of this happens. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, Chris Christie, and oh, much more. Brad Friedman, this is your Bradcast. Yes, that can only mean one thing. It's Desi Doyen with the Green News Report. And I'm running late. So, as usual, <laughs> I know you're shocked. Uh, we should get right to it, I suppose. Yes, 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 we should. It's got a lot chock full of stuff today. We'll find out our latest Green News Report. Well, this is a rule that actually regulates toxic pollution emissions from primarily coal facilities. Supreme Court strikes down first ever mercury pollution rules. Sit down and shut up. Chris Christie jumps into the 2016 race. We'll tell you his position on climate change. Coal plant forced to clean up toxic air pollution in the Navajo Nation. Plus, if we have to ditch or to bail out, we will be a couple of thousands of miles 
from any island or coast where somebody can rescue us. Solar-powered plane finally takes off on dangerous Pacific Ocean crossing. All of those dangerous missions and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And Jesus Christ returns to Earth, declares man-made climate change real. GOP responds, he's no scientist. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, so Chris Christie's really going to do it, huh? (laughs) Yeah, you bet. But we'll get to that in a moment. First, our top story, the Supreme Court has struck down the nation's first ever regulations to limit toxic mercury pollution from coal power plants on Monday. In the 5-4 to decision, the conservative majority did not undermine the authority of the Environmental Protection Agency in reducing toxic mercury pollution, but said the EPA failed to consider the costs to industry at the correct stage of the rulemaking process. Never mind the costs in lives, the 11,000 premature deaths each year, the $90 billion in health care costs that we accrue because of the pollution from these plants. The, the EPA did it out of order. They figured out the costs second instead of first. So let's get rid of the whole rule. But it's not all bad. Columbia University environmental law professor Michael Gerard told us earlier on the broadcast that most coal plants are already complying. Most of them have already done that or are already locked into buying the equipment that will do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The rule remains in effect until it goes back to the D.C. Circuit, uh, which will decide whether to put it on hold then or merely leave it in effect until the EPA goes forward with uh, with a revision. So most of these plants have either shut down or they're already meeting the requirements of this rule. I was really happy to hear that. And it's important to note that the EPA did do that cost-benefit analysis, as you said, and they found the public health benefits would outweigh the costs nine times over. But they did it out of order, so you got to start over from the beginning. But some good news. One of the most polluting coal-fired power plants in the nation will pay $168 million to clean up its operations in a settlement with the EPA. After years of litigation, the owners of the Four Corners power plant in the Navajo Nation have agreed to install new pollution controls, pay fines, and fund public health and air quality improvements in the region, where tribal members suffer some of the nation's highest rates of severe asthma. Meanwhile, in politics, on Tuesday, New Jersey's Republican Governor Chris Christie became the 14th candidate to jump into the crowded race for the 2016 Republican presidential nomination. We've been tracking the climate change positions of all of the official candidates, and Governor Christie takes the more evolved approach, accepting that climate change is real, but questioning how much of it is man-made and whether countries like China will ever cut their emissions. Well, that's what he says in public, but in private. As we found out at Bradblog.com some years ago, Chris Christie has a completely different story to tell when he thinks the public isn't listening. In secret audio obtained by the Bradblog from a secret Koch Brothers billionaires retreat, David Koch in 2011 revealed he privately met with Governor Christie, who shortly thereafter pulled New Jersey out of the Northeast's successful regional cap-and-trade emissions program. The audio's a little hard to understand, but I think you can get this. Here's David Koch introducing Chris Christie at this secret retreat in Colorado. Another example of Governor Christie's commitment to the free enterprise system is that 
only a few weeks ago, he announced that the New Jersey that New Jersey would be withdrawing from the Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which would, which would, which would have raised energy costs, reduced economic growth, and led to very little, if any, benefit for the environment. That led David Koch to go on to call Chris Christie my kind of guy. You can hear the entire audio of both Coke and Christie at bradblog.com. Finally, it's the moment of truth for the Solar Impulse 2, the 100% solar-powered plane making an historic trip around the world. The super ultralight plane took off from Japan on Monday after weeks of weather delays and has passed the point of no return on a grueling five-day non-stop flight across the Pacific to Hawaii. The solar panels must charge the batteries enough to to keep the plane aloft at night. The plane's co-owner, Bertrand Picard, says their goal is to show a better world is possible. For much more on all of the stories we covered today and those we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can and should follow the Green News Report on the Twitters and the Facebooks at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been... Your Green News Report. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you yes, can let's. use some exotic booze, there's a bar in Far Bombay. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Good yes. report. Yes, and also I just want to point out that not only is this the longest solar plane flight ever, but it is the longest solo aviation flight ever in aviation history. Wow, very yes. cool. Uh, well, our, uh, our our best to uh, to him. He's doing that alone, huh? He's right. all by himself in that All by plane. himself. Oh, man. All right. Well, our fingers are crossed. Good luck to you, sir. And uh, breaking, as, uh, as the Green News report's playing there, uh, the AP uh, says, U.S. and Cuba to announce opening of embassies on Wednesday. You can hear the Republican heads exploding as your new progressive age in these United States continue. You're welcome. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Michael Gerard of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law. We'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, you can always download our reports at bradblog.com or iTunes, where we hope you'll give us a good review. You can and should find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Bradblog. Feel free to drop me email, bradcast at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>